0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: When does a person decide to stand up against greed and power over? Decide to design and implement a human world they want It's just a decision, it's not too late. Acting together, we can do it, together. If I'm in public, I want to affect the public space towards relaxation, towards love, towards enjoyment, pleasure. And I noticed, I did it everywhere I went. For decades, I've only worn clown clothes for a public health gesture to put joy into the public space. Since I don't like violence, and I'm fully nonviolent, I needed an instrument to stop public violence. So for over 30 years, whenever I've seen violence in public, I change into my clown character, and it stopped the violence 100% of the times, simply by using clowning as a trick to get love close.
0: Hi, Patcher.
1: Hey, Glazer.
0: And what was the best part about having an amputation?
1: Well, the best part, it was truly the fact that without it, I would be a cripple. Let me make it perfectly clear. I am so glad I'm amputated because I'm going to have a foot I can use. I need to be able to dance fast rock and roll and wear my big clown shoes so fuck that foot
0: how's it going today patcher
1: (laughs) Lars it's the best day of my life
0: so you woke up this morning and what happened
1: well I I knew that this was the best day of my life
0: hey sir how's your day going
1: you know thanks for asking it's the best day of my life
2: Welcome to the best day of my life, Patch Adams' journey to the Nobel Peace Prize with Patch and Lars Adams. As we mentioned in episode one, in 2021, Patch Adams was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. And he got his foot amputated.
1: It's funny how often from around the world I've had people who've seen the amputation and they go, Oh, Patch, I'm so sorry, but I really want everybody to know I'm ecstatic.
0: You really are something else.
2: Now, before Patch's son Lars dives back into uncovering the story of how a suicidal misfit became a Nobel Peace Prize nominee, let's find out what happened to Patch Adams' left foot. I'm producer Rainbow Valentine, and welcome to episode two. Patch's childhood.
0: First off, tell us what happened to your foot.
1: Right. For four or five months, I had a deep infection of my left foot called MRSA, which is a staph aureus infection.
2: MRSA, MRSA, is a drug-resistant staph infection from common minor foot problems like cuts or cracks in the skin or athlete's foot or even ingrown toenails. MRSA, M-R-S-A, stands for Methicillin-Resistant Staphylococcus aureus. I hope I said that right. Which is a type of bacteria that's resistant to several antibiotics.
1: I had three operations on the foot and uh, took a lot of IV antibiotics. And it didn't work and it left my left foot pretty damaged. So much so that I couldn't be sure I'd ever really walk on it very well or dance or wear clown shoes. So I said, let's get rid of the sucker. So with great excitement and hope, I got an amputation below the knee. I'm so relaxed about the truth that I'm gonna have a great prosthesis that now is the time to enjoy stumpiosity. People go, oh, Patch, I'm so sorry you got amputated. I go, sorry? Hell, baby, let's lighten up. The exciting thing is, is that because of our wars, prostheses have really taken off in a beautiful way. My costumer is going to make little hats that sit on Stumpy Like one of them will be a moon, so it'll be two buttocks and a crevice, and so I can sit, go, be clowning around and seeing somebody who's struggling, and oh my God, and sit down with them, take off my prosthesis, and moon them.
0: Heidi is Patch's costumer. Heidi has made all of Patch's pants and shirts, very intricately detailed, one-of-a-kind for decades. Each one of them is a piece of art. Clothes that Heidi's made is what I will forever associate with my father. It's what he's always wearing.
1: I've not felt disabled, really, at all.
0: But do you remember waking up after your... Foot was amputated, and do you remember what that moment was like?
1: Well, it was more curious. I think you know me long enough to know I'm not going to wake up going, oh, God, I had an amputation, I'm a pathetic stumpy. No, I, I woke up wanting to call it stumpy and to get people laughing so that they wouldn't move to the, oh, my God, oh, this is horrible phase.
0: So did you already have the idea to call your amputation stumpy or yourself stumpy before you got it removed?
1: Right, I mean, you know, I'm a goofball. Lars, you're a goofball too. So, so I, I'm, it is my style to find humor in what is.
0: And can you tell us about your prosthesis? process what that's been like well
1: i really like uh bob the prosthetist he's a funny guy he likes humor and so we crack a lot of jokes and then he put on this plastic leg and eventually onto that put on a shoe and then i put on a matching shoe on my right foot And he took me over to some parallel bars and had me walk.
0: And what did that feel like?
1: Well, I was thrilled because I, you know, if I was told I would always have an amputation the rest of my life and never be able to walk again and would always be in a wheelchair, I would adjust to it. But that's not what anybody is saying. They're saying, get a prosthesis and walk and I've lived long enough and been a doctor long enough to where I've seen pictures of double amputees running marathons. And, you know, a single amputee running marathons is a pretty big deal. But a double amputee running marathons is even more of a big deal. I'm just a boring single amputation.
0: Well, I don't think you're boring at all.
1: I'm your family doctor. My ideal patient is someone who wants a deep personal friendship with me for life. Friendship 101 is to know everything about the other person. Okay, so I'd like to assume on the first date with a patient that they are thinking. So I would ask every patient, what is your philosophy of loving? Because were you a thinking person, by adulthood you would have philosophies of loving, not a sentence. and. second question was how do you carry it out because clearly if you have a philosophy of loving you would have ways of carrying it out the many ways you love yourself in a day to clearly know that that's never an issue you're loving yourself and the same with deciding to love humanity say that every person in the world
0: what was taking your first steps like does it feel like something you're going to be able to learn pretty easily, relearn how to walk?
1: That's what it felt like. It felt like I was going back and forth on these parallel bars, and they eventually had to slow me down and hose me me off, because I was really happy to be experimenting with it.
0: Have you thought of a name for your prosthetic foot yet?
1: No, I mean, outside of uh, Stumpy's Hat, I uh, It might be my footsie-wootsie. I, I don't know. Uh, maybe we can think of the most embarrassing name and call it that. Toes without toe jam.
0: Have you had any moments where you reached or felt for your phantom foot?
1: Oh, many, many times. Many, I still do it. I still it feels like I have a foot down there. And then I discover I don't. And there are a lot of times when I want to kind of rearrange my foot and realize I don't have a foot to rearrange. Mm. (laughs) I mean, it happens less, but I'm tickled that it still happens.
0: What do you miss about your meat foot?
1: Well, I mean, I miss getting up whenever I damn well please. I've not been a couch potato much of my life. I was the person that went for and did our food shopping. I, I, I love getting up, going for walks, and doing it. I mean, when you have an amputation, you find out how much you used to do. Mm. And then, in anticipating a prosthesis, you can anticipate returning to those things you can do and yet also finding out what you won't be able to do. Yeah. I'm debating on whether or not to be an old guy with a cane.
0: To start as you're adjusting and uh, adapting, that's probably a good idea. Do you have any advice for anyone with an infection that won't go away or advice to, to anyone so that something like this wouldn't happen to them?
1: Well, my advice for anyone, whether they're having no problems or lots of physical or mental problems, is to have fun. Make friends, get really good at making friends so that you never face anything alone and have a huge amount of appreciation. And if you have. And
0: also, maybe look at your feet with regularity to make sure you don't have any infections on your feet.
1: <laughs> right. All stop. All around town, Stumpy, don't fall down, Stumpy, don't hesitate, Stumpy, you gotta cogitate, oh Stumpy, he'll see you through, Stumpy, kick out of you, oh gotta kick up up your shoes and lose your Stumpy Stumpy, Blues, oh Stumpy, lose your Stumpy
2: and QA complete, Lars returned to where he left off in episode one Patch's Youth.
1: Larser, you lead the way and I'll follow. Okay.
0: So we are going to try to get some more details um, about your story back when you were in Germany. Or one element we'd like to hear more on was your relationship to your older brother wild man who is a year and a half older than you
1: well he is a year and a half older i'm the second son he and at least in germany went the more what i would call male direction he played on a baseball team and he was a lot more comfortable in entering dating he was a man I think you know that I had some male relationships at that time. They were pretty much hidden because in the 50s, you didn't have them openly.
0: I I feel like that's something I would like to touch on. But before we touch on that, I still want to uh, talk about your relationship with Wildman.
1: You know, Uh, I felt that he was always there um, as a man to take care of me, that... Neither of us were close to Dad. Korea pretty much ended Dad's closeness to us.
0: So I'm curious about what kind of stuff would you and your um brother do together at home? Like, how would you guys play together? What would you misbehave? What was it? Do you have any recollections of trouble you guys got into?
1: You know it's interesting this were these the Germany years were my nerd years where I were making pretty much straight A's. I was a bookworm where Bob known as my brother Robert or Bob, he was a scout and I tried scouts because of him. I didn't get very far. He became an eagle scout with palms, which is very high up in scouting. But me, I think I made it to second class as a Boy Scout. I mean, I, I was a hesitant camper. And again, there was the in-the-closet relationships, although I did start dating in Germany. You know, I thought he was going to go into the military, and he actually did go to the Naval Academy, something I observed but I didn't think I would participate in. Although I probably got in the Boy Scouts so that I could go on camping trips. You know, we, we didn't fight, or I don't remember. You could ask Wild Man yourself if he remembers us fighting.
0: You bonded over humor, I'm guessing, somewhat. Like, you, did you both like Jerry Lewis?
3: You get the door. Okay, sure. But well, be sure when you open the door you don't say nothing. Remember what I, I told say you. Nothing. Keep your no, mouth shut. Don't say nothing okay, to sure. nobody. Just no, open nothing, the door. To, see who's okay, there okay, and that's okay. all. You don't talk to nobody, you understand? Sure, I Just open okay, the door. Okay, that's all okay, I'm asking you sure. to do. Okay, well, open okay. the
2: door! That's Jerry Lewis, Patch's favorite comedian, who was also an actor, producer, director, and humanitarian, born in 1926. Now, Jerry Lewis came from a Jewish vaudeville family and started his career at age 15. He rose to prominence in the early 1950s, along with his comedy partner, Dean Martin. They started as a nightclub act before moving to radio and eventually starring in film. Jerry Lewis spent his career raising money for muscular dystrophy. He died in 2017.
0: Did you both like Jerry Lewis? It was
1: much bigger for me than for him. Until we moved back to the U.S., Our lives were kind of separate in the maleness and the strangeness.
2: So Lars decided to call his uncle, Wildman, in West Virginia to get his side of the story.
3: I could always interpret him, and he could always interpret me. And if you got both of us, then you you got the story. We were always together. I mean, we were in Japan, we were in Germany, wherever... It was a rare, rare time when we were not together until college.
0: Going back to Japan, what are some memories you have uh, from Japan with Patch?
3: Now, how did we get our exposure to the love thing? You know, what makes life, life? I think a giant part of it is Japan.
2: So Patch is known for doing global presentations on love. Here's an excerpt.
3: What is your love
1: strategy? Can you think of anything in your life more important than loving? Raise your hand. More important than life? Raise your hand. Right, this is 69 countries, probably 20 million people in audiences. That's my study. Maybe 10 people have raised their hand, which if you're a math person is an insignificant number. We can say loving is the most important thing in life. If we make the presumption that we are thinking animals, a presumption we would imagine we would think more as an adult and entering adulthood about loving than any other subject because it's clear to us it's the most important thing in life thousands of hours about loving ourselves our friends our lovers our children God if you have one loving a tree a rock a piece of music you would uh, spend thousands of hours on it, an infinite Infinite subject on just loving yourself in a beautiful way.
2: Here's Patch's brother Wildman again.
3: Because we went to Japan in 1947, and in order to get the economy going in Japan, which was devastated, was that we were assigned three 18-year-old Japanese girls to a lieutenant's house. A child childcare, cleaning, and one of the girls always stayed over at night, and they were 18. They had never seen a Caucasian before. These particular three young ladies had never. And they were, in the Japanese culture, of family. They were incredibly loving. I mean, fawning. They had nothing. And I can remember mom telling them, so they got a little stipend from the government to be with that. That's how they get the economy going. And they got precious little, but they would continually buy us gifts, you know, little, little whatever gifts. And mom would say, don't, don't don't spend your money on them. But they couldn't help it because they were loving. And I can remember having a heck of a bout of diarrhea when I was about four. At night, I would not go up to mom and dad. I would go up to the child care lady because she would treat it so lovingly. It was like diarrhea. It was, oh boy, diarrhea, how nice. And she'd hug us and hug me and take off my sleeper and clean me up. But you wouldn't know that it was an unpleasant task like so many people would treat such a task as unpleasant. It was loving. It was not artificial. These young ladies in their own tradition, their culture, they were loving. Hmm. They gave true, serious devotion. And I think that leaked in to us because it was almost three years there. I mean, I can remember crying when we left saying, will we ever meet any Japanese people when we go back to America? I think we both had a running ability to speak Japanese probably I more than he since I was 18 months older I can remember mom saying that they would go touristing around we had a, a regular army open-air jeep was our vehicle we were living next door to a Japanese family and I remember visiting them as children they had a daughter our age you know mom even Japan Germany she liked she like if there was something to go see she wanted to go see it. And she would take us all.
0: And was your dad around much in this time?
3: Probably more that time than any time. I mean, he was, you know, nine to five, basically, at this point. And then just as we left is when Korea started, and then that was...
0: Did you feel like you had maybe a closer relationship to your dad than Patch did, or...?
3: I don't remember that. Even at that point, he'd been in the war in Europe, and so we'd just been with Mom and uh, young children are gonna be attracted to the people that have been caring for them since they were infants. Uh, Yes, we we had some outings with him, uh, more so then than ever. We took a ship from San Francisco to uh, Tokyo and we stopped in Hawaii and then we went on to Tokyo and then we took a boat back. You know, we would run around the boat because back then they didn't have planes to take you to all the bases but the boat trips were always great we would just run around we were not our parents were not helicopter parents and so we just we took off mm. and Pat was usually the one you know he's more extrovert i'm more introvert he was the one who had the ideas of, but we would you know i remember going down the lower decks was where the troops were we would go down there and and hang with the troops
0: so after Japan, uh, you guys were in Germany, right?
3: No, uh, we went, we came back, I think, the end oh. of 49. And then whenever we were in between places, we stayed at uh, your great-grandmother's mother's
2: mother. Patch and Wildman sound similar, so I'll remind you who's speaking. Back to Patch and Lars.
1: Every year we took a vacation.
0: What were do you, What memories of vacations do you have?
1: A combination of vacations. I remember Spain particularly, and also mother, not with dad, because we didn't really get to know his family till later, but we went back to Virginia, even to Granny's house in
3: Waverly. Waverly in King George, Virginia. And we stayed
2: there. Here's Wildman discussing their grandparents.
0: What was your great-grandmother like?
3: No... Patch has a different idea. I I love the lady. She was Victorian. I mean, um, you couldn't say the word garbage. You had to say refuse. You couldn't say Tuesday. You had to say Tuesday. Uh, and there were a lot of the Victorian rules that I, I sort of, I mean, you know, during the day, Patch and I were out, out in the woods climbing trees, uh, digging holes, digging caves. And then, but at night, I I enjoyed her. I I liked her very much. And she was very, very formal, but she was highly intelligent. You know, grandfather wrote a column for the Richmond Times Dispatch every day for 20 years, and his name was on it. But the truth is that he would write it and give it to Marie she would correct it (laughs) make it what it is and then he'd send it in
0: that's interesting because when you read his column it doesn't sound like he would be married to a proper Victorian woman
3: well you know he he was a rogue in his youth he was rowdy
0: do you have memories of him?
3: I don't remember him at all he died in 47 oh right But uh, I heard stories from his first cousin. He was a rowdy boy, but he was a lawyer, but he was a lawyer for the people who needed it. He wasn't a lawyer for the rich folks. And he was a state senator. He went to Richmond as a state senator. He he liked his John Barleycorn, and he he enjoyed a good joke, a good, he was not. Patrick was probably more like him.
2: Here's Patch on his grandfather.
1: He was uh, a writer, and he had a regular, for many years, decades, an article, daily article in the Richmond Times-Dispatch, columns from the Cavalier. We have books of it.
0: Yeah, a lot of what he talks about, you've also embodied in your own way.
1: Yeah, his was more of the 1920s and 30s and 40s, and 50s doing that.
0: But but still, some of it, if you take out the parts of it that uh, signal it's from that era, it sounds like some of it could be
1: written today.
2: Yes. Here's an excerpt from Patch's grandfather's weekly opinion column.
1: He wrote, I am prejudiced against all sorts of formality and artificiality, against all finicky and formal politeness. I do not believe that there is anything important in good manners that does not spring spontaneously out of kindness and consideration. I like kindness and friendliness and I return them instantly to all who effuse them. I do not like obtrusive politeness, this perhaps because I do not shine at it. I am prejudiced against those people who cannot discuss any subject in a good humor, who are not ready for any sort of rough roll and tumble argumentative give and take. I am prejudiced against people who are too dignified and solemn. I like a fellow of infinite jest. I am prejudiced against all sour and censorious persons. However dignified you endeavor to be, you will never quite equal in dignity the ordinary domestic jackass or the plain garden variety of barnyard goose. When you say it, smile." Wow, that's an unusual statement. I don't remember ever reading such a statement from my grandfather.
0: Do you remember him?
1: So he died when I was young. I understand he was a very loving lawyer who often defended the poor against the rich. And he grew up in the South where there was a lot of prejudice and racism. And I don't remember hearing him make racist comments. I remember him being that grandmother was more the heavy dude than than uh, granddad. And that's because she came to live with us in Germany for a year. And, but she was, she was much more like mother around the politeness and the do-rightness.
0: That's so interesting, because he, he seem in his writings, he seems like, I mean, you could tell he's a good guy, but he's also likes his vices and is strong on his convictions and is not about being polite, he's about being honest.
1: Right, and he drank during the Prohibition.
0: Oh, a thousand percent. I'm reading his stuff. I'm like, I wish I could have a beer with him. He'd probably like whiskey, but... uh.
1: Right. I'm more of a beer person growing up in Germany.
2: After learning about Patch's early youth in Japan and his subversive grandfather and proper Victorian grandmother, Lars circled back to Patch's adolescence in Germany.
1: Well, I want to, uh... Jimmy Sherman was my best friend.
0: Okay, great. Tell me about what what you... uh, Yeah. And, like? and,
1: and Jimmy and I experimented with touching each other. And uh, strip poker was a game we played because nudity. This is the the fifties. Remember, it's it's before the sixties, and so that was an area of mystery. I I looked at women. I did not have really access to them in. And maybe in my last year or so in Germany, I did join. Because,
0: did it give you social anxiety to interact with them, women? Well, I,
1: being more of a nerd and a sissy boy, I, and being in military families, I thought they, they liked the uh, football players and mm. that sort of thing. So I so, had more private fantasies than real fantasies.
0: Right. You weren't confident in yourself yet to... And and society was telling you that you weren't a desirable kind of man or boy.
1: Right. I didn't fit into the military thinking at all. Mm. And so and, I never had a conversation with me about manlyhood
0: did you stay in touch with Jimmy when you went back to the US
1: a little while mm. and, and somehow I mean I would say it even got it may have lasted as long as medical school oh. but we didn't really you know in military families you live in Virginia and they live yeah, <laughs> in right. the 50 states
0: Yeah, of course.
2: Here's Lars processing this new information.
0: I love that part of my dad's intimacy explorations in his youth. I think it makes a lot of sense, considering that he felt very awkward interacting with uh, girls and that he had guy friends that he was really comfortable and safe with. Um, and that he was eager to explore intimacy. I really liked his message on Pride that he posted this past week. I don't know if you
2: saw it. Here's an excerpt from Patch's Gay Pride Month video.
1: It's Pride Month, and I wanted to talk about my relationship to Pride Month. When it was going on in my life, it was very silent, and that is that when I was a teenager, I had some relationship with men, Partly because I couldn't have relationships to women, I was too weird a kid. But the truth is, I was attracted to some men. As I aged and had, I'm now with my second wife Susan, who is the miracle treasure of my life. I have no embarrassment to tell audiences that I have been gay. Or, I guess, modern terminology. It wasn't very much modern terminology 40 years ago, 50, 60 years ago, bisexual. And maybe that's what, quote, Pride Week is. For a lot of my life, a person's gayness was hush-hush, which means you shouldn't feel pride because how can you be hush-hush if you're going to feel pride? It's time to have pride if you are gay. I love now, and I'm very happy to say, in Pride Month, that I have been there. I have no regrets, and I have fond memories, and that in the world of dating, the hope is that whatever you end up liking over 18, why not have a great and delicious and charming an engaging relationship with them. Whether your parents agree or not, or your friends agree or not, it's between you and your partner. If you two are loving it, keep loving it. One of the things I found out early was that if you made really good grades, you could misbehave and not really be punished in school. And I took advantage of that, and usually manly men didn't like me taking advantage of that.
0: And taking advantage of that in what ways?
1: Taking advantage of my academic record to misbehave. If you were a C student, you got more in trouble misbehaving than if you were an A student.
0: This dilemma of, uh, well, he's one of... Students, oh, he's misbehaving, but he's also learning so much,
1: (laughs) right? And there wasn't, you know, wasn't in uh, yet as it has become. And
0: what was that gayness? Okay,
1: and so it was silent, it was something you did with somebody, and it was or silent there about it.
0: And were you grateful to share that intimacy?
1: Oh, it was great.
0: So I can remember you sharing some memories of your dad. And I think it would be nice to like paint a picture that I've heard you tell me before. On a normal day, what was it like? What was his wake up like?
1: Well, mother did all of the childcare and he went to work. Mm -hmm. He bought things for the military and then would come home. I remember most sit, him sitting in the chair that he sat in. TV didn't come until very late in my life in Germany. And so he would drink Seagram Seven Crown and he would chain-smoke cigarettes and, and read. He and mother were both readers. You know, I remember so few conversations with him. He, he wasn't nasty. He was inside. We didn't get, we were more punished when we needed to be punished by mother than by him. You know, I, I think a lot of dads take their sons somewhere camping or somewhere, and I don't remember him doing that. I, I had the feeling that he liked Wild man more than myself because wild man did sports and he was a man, more of a manly man. And that I was a nerd, dweeb, dork, sissy boy.
0: Nerd, dweeb, dork, sissy boy.
1: Right. Mother, of course, didn't believe in any of those terms. And when she did walk in on Jimmy and I doing an obvious thing, she turned around, shut the door, and never mentioned it.
0: So she walked in on you, too?
1: Well, Jimmy would spend the night as my best friend. And mm-hmm. and when things got later at night, it wasn't every time, mind you. It just...
0: No, of course. I mean, I... But,
1: but it did happen, and she walked in on it and never brought it up, which is mother's style.
2: Right. What are your thoughts on this, Lars? I love that
0: part of my dad's intimacy explorations in his youth. And I'm, I'm happy that even when his mom encountered them, that she didn't make him feel bad about it or that she didn't make a big hubbub about it. I think he didn't exist with a lot of guilt or shame around that, but he knew it was something he couldn't talk about or share.
2: So Patch was always an individualist following his heart. Now, we're going to go back to Lars and Wildman. Here's a vivid memory Wildman has of Patch's youthful maverickism.
3: When we were in Germany this start with, even fifth, sixth grade, we were in an apartment house where the on the top floor there were rooms for a maid's room for every apartment they could have a maid and the maid would stay upstairs in that room. Well, we took the maid's room that was for our house and he bought a chemistry set and he was doing chemical experiments
2: in fifth and sixth grade. And here's Patch's version of the same story.
1: I had a laboratory and where the maid was supposed to be spending the night in our apartment building and I could make bombs, I could make All sorts of things. And I I loved chemistry and did experiments. Like what? Well, there were chemistry set experiments. There were always those and they were fun to do. And then they were your own experiments where you're trying to make gunpowder or things that stink bad or things like that.
0: Did you make your own stink bombs?
1: Not as good as the ones you could get in Germany. I love those. You can get three little glass containers of hydrogen sulfide and break them, and nobody knows you break them, but people are going, oh, what's that smell?
2: Note how Patch turned around Lars's question about making his own stink bombs, instead talking about his favorite store-bought German-made stink bombs. Well, luckily, we have Wildman to dish the stink bomb dirt.
3: He made the stinky bomb and we'd run this tube in somebody else's house and have hydrogen sulfide or, you know, the stinky stuff. And then, I mean, and that was always.
0: He was, you guys laid uh, um, a tube into somebody
3: else's apartment. Oh, well, yeah. So, so for whatever. And then
0: you, and then you stink bombed it through the tube with a yeah, solution. The, yeah. that Patch had made?
3: Well, or we, but it was Patch.
0: Oh my gosh.
3: <laughs> and you may have thought he was dweebing, but he, in a way he was leading. Maybe he wouldn't even recognize it, but I do.
0: Interesting. But
3: I could have never done what he did. That's Excuse- not who I was.
0: He did lean into his mischievousness too at a young age then.
3: Oh, and sometimes he thought of it as... Uh, being weird but it wasn't it was going where nobody else dare go and he was going i was right behind him but i wasn't in front we all know the atomic bomb is very dangerous since it may be used against us we must get ready for it just as we are ready for many other dangers that are around us all the time now we must be ready for a new danger the atomic bomb you will know when it comes If you were not ready and did not know what to do, it could hurt you in different ways. It could knock you down hard or throw you against a tree or a wall. It is such a big explosion, it can smash in buildings and knock signboards over and break windows all over town.
0: Did your mom know you bought stink bombs?
1: No, they were so cheap you didn't have to tell mother.
0: And you, okay...
1: We got an allowance, and
0: and where would you go to uh, use them?
1: Wherever people were, you could do it in a bar to see what what happened there. You could do it in a crowded—I mean, school was a place to do them.
0: So, so this is
1: people knew you had them. No one knew who did it. Sometimes they thought it was a fart.
0: Yeah, this is it's something that a father-son activity that me and Patch used to do quite regularly together, so it is uh, something that he passed down to me at a pretty young age, at about that age, about 10 or 11.
1: Right, and as, as soon as you find out that your sons laugh at stinking and there's stink bombs available, duh.
0: No brainer.
1: No brainer.
0: Uh, did you ever use them against your mom? Or around your mom, I should say?
1: You know, I loved my mom really a lot. And she was a, such a loving person, you know. I never really saw her have an angry look on her face. And, and so I still like to be disgusting and not be found out. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm. I wouldn't be surprised if stink bombs happened, or that we made stinky things in our laboratory and would let her come up and because she is a school teacher and so the laboratory had interesting school teachery things as well, and as did science projects. Yeah, but I, I'm gonna. I'm sure. I wish I could remember, but I'm sure I did the stink bomb thing, especially early in stink bombs, because you wouldn't know that they were something. But once you know that there's something, then when you smell something, you know that probably Hunter, you know, we there were no patches at that time. There was strictly a Hunter or worse, a huntsy, which is why i had girly boy tendencies
0: see this this also makes me um it's something i think a lot about uh your struggle with um the gender binary and society's imposed rules around the gender binary and uh It's something that now my generation and the generations below me are rejecting the gender binary at amazing rates. And I think that if the community and language that exists now around gender and throughout my life, I've heard stories that you've imparted in me that I don't have to accept gender norms. But I think this has been really good. Larzer, it's so good to be doing this
1: with you. How are we doing about ourselves? How are, is humanity loving humanity? Well, there's never been a peacetime. No country was ever safe to its women in history. 44 years of interviewing an insufferable number of people, probably insufferable on their part, since they sat next to me on the plane or wherever. No one ever had one. Rich, poor, educated, uneducated. In 44 years, no one ever started talking about their philosophy of loving and actually had a plan for carrying it out. Not a single person. So for the most important thing in life, we don't think about it. Where do we learn things? One place we could learn things would be a school. Okay, so a school. K through 12, 13 years, mathematics, rarely voted the most important thing in life, gets five hours a week, every week for 13 years, as does science, often history and language, none of which any of them would ever be voted the most important thing in life. 13 years. In my study, not a single public school in the world teaches one hour in 13 years of the thoughtfulness of loving. So we don't think about it, we don't teach it. So the most important thing in life is so big, unbelievably big, that it's practically unanimous globally, and we don't think about it, we don't talk about it, we don't teach it. You know the estimates for where depression will be, which for me Some of you know, I think, is never a diagnosis, that it's a pharmaceutical company diagnosis, that depression is a symptom of loneliness. All you need is one friend to get rid of loneliness.
2: In the next episode, Lars digs deep into Patch's teen years in post-World War II Germany in the American South, where Patch attempted suicide three times. It's the Best Day of My Life is produced by Rainbow Valentine Studios. Executive producers are Patch and Lars Adams, Thessaly Lerner and Rainbow Valentine, written and edited by Thessaly Lerner. Scored, mixed and mastered by Ryan Reeves, narrated by Rainbow Valentine. Music by Hope for a Golden Summer, The Ukulele, Greg Moore, and Noodle McDoodle. Theme song and Stumpy's Rag by Noodle McDoodle. Thanks to Derek Busby, the Gazoon Height Institute, our partners at Pantheon Podcasts, and you, our listeners. So this series is produced by a team of volunteers passionate about telling stories that make the world awesome, joyful, and peaceful. If you can help us in any way, swing by rainbowvalentine.com and shoot us an email. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for episode four.